Hey guys, LML here. The star date is May 14th, 2019, and I have here for you Mythheads of the podcast feed a Q&A that I did live right before episode one of the season, so about five weeks ago. This was the last podcast I did before the show started, and as most of you know, I've been covering the Game of Thrones TV show on my YouTube channel eh, for the first three weeks anyway. I was, however, so disappointed with episode three and the way they wrapped up the White Walker, Bran, and Prince that was promised storylines that I really could not continue to talk about the show without going extremely negative, and nobody wants that. I really only got into the show this year because they seemed to be doing something with symbolism, and that all came to naught. And I really didn't want to do a negative YouTube show, as that's not what I came here to do. Instead, I'm taking the last few weeks of the season off to recuperate, which I really needed, and to deal with some personal life stuff that needed attention. And I'll be back with new book-centric material after the season is over, and the fandom rage cools down. Rah, rah, rabble, rabble. Going forward, I'm going to be focusing more on scripted content, both the standard podcasts that I've always done, and more of those short LML and 13 vids that I've been doing, and probably with fewer live streams. The live streams are fun, but create so much audio editing work for me that I cannot keep up. And I think the LML and 13 vids are actually doing a better job at making the basic symbolic ideas more accessible and bringing new people into our world of a song of ice and fire symbolism. And that is always the goal. So... Look for new stuff for me in a few weeks, and I hope that you enjoy this Q&A, which touched on a lot of good topics. Also, I've done a couple of cool collaborations recently. I did an interview with Lauren from the Lauren's Corner YouTube channel, which you can find just by searching for Lauren's Corner, L-A-U-R-E-N apostrophe S. And we talked about uh, some of my feelings about the show and some of uh, what's been going on lately, and we got into some cool philosophy and few fun personal questions about me if you're into that kind of thing, so check that out. I also did an interview with Stefan Sasse of the Boiled Leather Audio Hour podcast. And you guys, some of you guys at least, uh, know Stefan. He's very smart, and the Boiled Leather podcast has been a mainstay in the fandom for many years. I've been a fan for a long time, so it was a big honor for me to get on there and talk with Stefan. And uh, it was basically an interview about mythical astronomy and symbolism and kind of what we're doing here and... Uh, we got into some really good stuff just because Stefan is awesome and he had some really good questions and comments and whatnot. So check that out. That's called the Boiled Leather Audio Hour podcast, and you can find that on any podcast uh, mechanism, wherever you get your podcasts, you know. So that's about it, guys. That's the update for now. Enjoy the Q&A, and I'll see you back in a couple weeks. And hey, who's ready for T-Wow, right? Why, hello, everyone. Hello. Thank you, everybody, who came over from the Indie Geek stream. Uh, really appreciate it. Saw something like 800 people watching over there. It was crazy. Indie Geek's numbers going up and up. Everyone's fired up for the show, so thanks for coming on over. We are. This is pretty much an AMA, if you will, and ask me anything. And, yeah, so you guys can post any questions you want in the chat. Um, I've got some Patreon questions I'll be going through first. And uh, if you want to get it bumped up, obviously a super chat's the way to do that. So if you want to send in a super chat, I will appreciate it, and I will be sure to get your question. Uh, Donnell People says, "Cheers to my two favorite content creators going live back to back." And what am I looking forward to the most? Well, I'd I'd say I'm just looking forward to anything that gives us clues about the end game of Game of Thrones. And I'm I mean, there's more specific things like I want to see if Widow's Whale and Oathkeeper gets reforged how many actual flaming swords we might have, 
Uh, what's going to happen with the ice dragon and the fire dragon? I do think we'll get some sort of ice dragon or whited dragon in the books too. Um, so I'm looking forward to all that stuff. I'm just looking forward to reading the tea leaves. And that's what we're going to be doing uh, basically all season on Nawi is enjoying the show, yes, but also trying to figure out uh, what this means for some of our theories and guesses about the endgame. So, yes, Nawi was a ton of fun. It was very cool. It was I've never done uh, shifts like that. We had you know, four guests for 40 minutes, and then we swapped out those guests and brought on a new panel of guests. Worked a lot better than having 12 people on at once. That's uh, that's for sure. So, with oh, actually, there was a super chat question that came on before we started. Let me go back and grab that. It was from House Kraken Tacos, uh, whose full name I shall actually call out because I think this is a newer nickname. In fact, let's actually start with some new nicknames. Since I've been neglectful of nicknames, we we do have some new patrons and some new patron nicknames. So John O'Blackheel of House Crack and Tacos has upgraded. He is now the guardian of the king's crown and the cradle, whose words are, too much of everything is just enough. So that's pretty cool. Uh, another new guardian of the galaxy is Enigmatic Estelle, the toller of the bell, guardian of the crone's lantern, and keeper of the door of death. Like I said, House Crack and Tacos was asking, are the dragons the result of a GMO? And of course... He's responding to my Dracomorph theory that I put out for all you patrons earlier today. Um, it's a patron-only essay. Uh, if you donate at any level on my Patreon, you can get access to that. And basically, it is my technical theory about how the blood of the dragon came to be and also how um, dragons may have been engineered by Valeria or actually more likely the Great Empire of the Dawn. And that is building off of Amanda's video about the creation of dragons. And if one of my excellent mods could drop a link to Amanda's video, I, I know you guys all are followers and subscribers of the Disputed Lands, but in case you've missed it this past week, make sure you go and check that video out. And then uh, sign up for my patron if you haven't already. You can check out the Dracomorph theory. But basically, I think George is riffing off of um, aliens, the xenomorphs in aliens. And I think those worms that Araya had in, inside of her are giving us an important clue uh, because they had the hands and faces of humans, even though they're some sort of parasitic worm. And it occurs to me that that's not, uh, that's not a stable evolutionary form, a worm with hands and faces. There's no reason why worms would have hands and faces, whether they're burrowing through rock or burrowing, burrowing through a human body, they would have, you know, worm faces and probably no hands like all worms have. Uh, so what I'm looking at when I see these worms bursting out of array with hands and faces of humans, I think what's happening is they're, they're combining their DNA with Araya. And so these worms are actually like have absorbed some of her DNA. This is exactly what happens with the movie Aliens, you guys know. You know, the face hugger jumps on your face and it crams its ovipositor down your throat, puts the little alien spawn in your belly. And then when it breaks out, it's actually got part of your DNA. Uh, and this is something that they got into in the more recent alien prequel movie with the engineers and all that shit. What was it called? I forget. Uh, in any case, we saw those xenomorph uh, creatures combine with other creatures. And each time it did, it would replicate a new being that was a combination of the classic alien form and whatever creature was the host. And so there's this constant like 
weird genetic experiment going on. And I think George is giving us clues about that. Uh, Prometheus, yes, thank you. That's what the movie is called, Prometheus. And so they got into some of that stuff, and we really got to see that it's not um, it's not just the same alien and, and little face hugger thing every time. Like every time it combines with a new creature, it's going to be different. So I think there's something maybe going on like that with areas worms. And like I said, if you want to get the whole essay, then check that out. It's on uh, Lucifer Means Lightbringer Patreon. Could donate for as little as a dollar a month and get that. Um, yeah, Prometheus was okay. It had exciting ideas, had a lot of weak points. Um, but uh, yeah, I was. That's one of those ones where like the ideas in the movie are really good, and you wish they had done a little bit better. But it wasn't horrible. Uh, yeah, it's it is what it is. Almost all movies suck now, don't they? All right, so uh, let so are the are the Xeno are the eight dragons GMOs was. Kraken Taco's question, and yes, they are in some sense. Um, they they do seem to be. I used to be on the fence about that because we're told dragon skeletons are found all over the world. But what I think is that they were just created during the Great Empire of the Dawn, and they probably got loose and and got around the world at some point. Uh, but I, I think Amanda has convinced me that they were made from worms and wyverns, just as Septon Barth speculates. So I'm kind of sold on that, and I see people bringing up. Both um, Dune, which of course has worms and people turning into worms and worm-human hybrids, if you will, as well as In the House of the Worm, which is a short story by uh, George Martin that I have not read. So it's possible there are more xenomorph clues lurking in House of the Worm uh, were I to go looking. But it's a new idea. I wanted to put it out so you guys could play with it. And actually, I think Amanda uh, is going to do a live stream on her channel about her dragon creation videos and uh i'm going to be on there with her and we're going to talk about some of this too so we'll probably kick around all these weird ideas for just how the valerians combined dna of different animals or humans and animals but like i said let's uh let me rip into some patreon questions here so i'm going to take uh take an easy one first jancy lee lady of the waves bear mama of the sacred den says no question i just want to say thanks for all the content Rarely make the live streams, unfortunately, but I enjoy watching them all later on YouTube. I appreciate all the hard work you put in and the thought-provoking content. Well, thanks, Jancy Lee. And of course, I do get nice notes like that all the time. I always appreciate them. I do work really hard. Uh, lately, I've been talking a little more about sort of being a little stressed out and overworked. My, my day job has picked up a lot, and I'm still trying to do all this. And I like to bite off more than I can chew and try to put out too many episodes too quick and stuff. So all these little notes like this always encourage me and I always appreciate it. So thanks, Jancy Lee. Uh, I do love what I do. Um, I wish I had more time in the day, like, like everybody, <laughs> but yeah, I definitely love you guys know I'm pretty passionate about this. So mermaid Amathea, who is a patron of mine pipes in with a question, but before, before I share her question, I actually want to shout her out. She has her own Patreon and she makes, Mermaid Tales. Yes, that's right. Mermaid Tales. If you, uh, there's a thing called mermaiding where you can put on mermaid tails and swim around in the water with other people and be mermaids. And it's actually pretty damn cool. Uh, so, Mermaid Amathea is a mermaider. She's a mermaid and she makes those tails that you can buy. And I just dropped the link in the chat. It is super cool. And if you've never heard of it, check it out. So, in any case, she writes in. 
Hi, Lucy. I had a story I wanted to share about something really interesting I saw while in Japan recently. And this is going to be slightly non a song of ice and fire, but it's pretty cool. So check this out, guys. She says, My husband and I had a mission to see as much kabuki and no theater as possible. And one act we saw made my myth head brain explode. There's the scene is set at a gateway in Japan with a special Sakura tree prominently on the stage, currently in full blossom. A Chinese sympathizer, Japan and China currently being at war at this time, is undercover at,、uh, at the gate. In the previous scene, he takes a bloody stained message from the Lord guarding the gate and keeps it in his pocket. Suddenly, he sees the stars align perfectly in the sign that China had prophesied is the time to act against the Emperor of Japan. He discards his disguise and attempts to chop down the Sakura tree as a symbol of China's power. But when he attempts to swing the axe, an invisible force prevents him, pushes him away. Inside the tree appears a spirit woman who comes out, claims to be interested in him as a lover. They have a beautiful dance where she tries to convince him they belong together, but she is actually attracted to something he has in his robes. She gets close enough to take it, and it's revealed that it's the message that is stained with what turns out to be her lover's blood, and she is currently astral projecting through the tree from a palace far away. Her spirit sensed the bloody rag through the tree, and she wanted it back. Her、uh, and the sympathizer dance in what is supposed to be a battle in which the sympathizer assumes the futures of the demon while the vengeful tree spirit hits him with her blossoming branches. Anyways, I thought you'd find this interesting. The story was written a few hundred years ago. And、uh, I read this because,、uh, not because it, you know, George Martin is using any of this in particular, but just because it has a lot of the classic mythical ar- archetypes that George likes to use. And I always like to find. Examples from different world cultures, especially ones that we don't、uh, mine as much, you know, for influence like Greek and Norse myth,、uh, just, to just show that things like the world tree,、um, woman,、uh, you know, w- w- female spirits of the tree sort of incarnating and going back into the tree, these kind of ideas are out there, kind of they're like there's nothing new under the sun. And it's always fun to get sort of more context. For the ideas that we're talking about in A Song of Ice and Fire, because sometimes we talk about stuff like, oh, you know, Nissa Nissa went into the tree and she's a tree spirit, and it's like, well, sounds all weird.、Um, we don't see a lot of that sort of crazy stuff forefront in A Song of Ice and Fire. It's more in the background. So sometimes when you get into the weeds of some of the stuff that we mythheads are proposing, it's a little, you know, far fetched maybe, but it's, it starts to make more sense when you see it in the context of, of stuff like this. So, Mark K writes in Is there more connections between the idea of a horn bringing down the wall and the fall of Jericho in the Bible? If you've addressed this before and I missed it, please let me know. No, I have not addressed that,、uh, but that's a great point.、I've, it's occurred to me before, and、I'm, I do still have a, at least one horn episode planned, perhaps more. And we're definitely going to talk about the horn of Jericho. So, if you guys don't know, Uh, the fall, not the horn of Jericho, but the fall of Jericho. Essentially,、uh, the Israelites were you know, conquering the,、uh, the quote unquote promised land, Le- the Levant. They came up against Jericho, which is a giant fortress city with very high walls, very intimidating, very strong. And、uh, what they did is God told them to march around the city seven times, blowing horns and trumpets. And on the seventh time,、uh, the walls you know, magically、uh, fell, fell down. And This has actually led to some really cool, like somewhat crackpot、uh, f- 
Bible theories, if you will, about the Israelites having magic horns and using sonic technology and stuff like that. Um, those are always good reading. Uh, but of course, this is the kind of idea which may have inspired George when we hear about a horn bringing down a famous wall. So I, I am going to go do and do a little more research on that and see if there's any more specific correlations. But at the very least, it's um, you know, it's it's a loose correlation. So could it be? Is it possible? Aliens? Yes, that's right. John Ice Eyes. Xenomorph aliens. Teresa Lowe, thanks for the super chat. And I think I missed another one. Dan Horigs, super chat. Thank you. Maria GNB asks, adding to the inverse dualities and oxymorons previously discussed, as in the sweet stench, the screaming of agony and ecstasy, the gift of death, among others, and taking into account the stark equals strong equivalence, I thought it would be interesting to point out that the word for poison in German is gift. Well, that is in it is interesting. Um, I think it's spe specifically interesting to think about are especially interesting to think about in the context of the gift region near the wall, and also when considering your theory about the moon meteor poisoning the land and the weirwoods, because, of course, guys, the moon meteors are the fire of the gods, but they also are poison at the same time. Then on a second topic, um, and, of course, guys, you know, you're, all Euron's gifts are poisoned. You're probably already thinking about that line, so this is definitely a theme. And then she says on a separate topic, I would like to ask, thinking about unicorns, baby stealing, seed stealing, moon tea, and many other recurring themes that fit together, do you think it's possible that this is a war for fertility? It seems to me that this may be what was stolen in the first place. Uh, well, yeah, so that fits a lot with the idea that the others have are the original green men or tree spirits. Uh, they have gotten kicked out of the weirwood net, right? So they've lost their fertility. And we've also talked talked about how the summer king winter king you know oak king and holly king duality the summer king is the garth figure who's very fertile and robust and hairy and all that and uh the winter king is often emaciated sometimes even castrated they've they've lost their fertility uh so yes this very much is a war for fertility and in a sense the others have been robbed of their fertility or they've given it up if the others perhaps sinned to become the way that they are, as opposed to being victims. Uh, let's see here. What are you guys talking about in the chat? There's a there's a Hugh G. Rection in the chat. Nobody nobody banned that person. That person is. That's I'm down with that. That's cool. That's legit. John will be Danny's third betrayal. I'm telling you. We'll see. You know, um, on In Deep Geek Stream uh, last hour, somebody suggested the idea that. The three betrayals Danny will know. Maybe she will commit the betrayals. Um, I thought this was an interesting idea because the line actually is three treasons will you know. And that's a little bit ambiguous. Uh, it does sort of sound like she'll know treasons that are done to her, but she might know the treasons because she ends up committing them. Um, and of course, when you think about uh, things like treason... You know, these these are all in the eye of the beholder. So when she killed Viserys, like, I think that was justified. Viserys was threatening her life and that of her baby with the sword. And he had done so multiple times. So I think that's legit what she did with Viserys. But from a certain angle, Viserys was her liege lord. And she essentially usurped him there. So in a, 
in symbolic terms, that is a usurpation, and it could be considered a betrayal in a loose sense. Um, so I need to explore that idea more. And you guys know I'm super pro Danny. So just because the prophecy might cut both ways, um, that's what it would be. Like if if it also applies to Danny committing what are could be betrayals, then she will also have been betrayed herself. So it'd be a, a both ways kind of thing. I'll have to look into that more. Um, but again, you know, George loves putting our characters in these really cruel binds. Like Jon Snow gets it all the time where there's like no right choice. Or if you make the right choice, it still comes with consequences. People are going to think you're a monster or a villain, even though you do the right thing. Uh, so, you know, don't, don't take what I'm saying as Danny hate by any means. I'm, I'm very pro Danny. I think she's got a good heart in the right place. And for the most part, she's uh, burning the right people. But uh, some people need to get burned. It's true. There's bad people in the A Song of Ice and Fire world. All right. So here's uh, Marie Lind on Twitter actually has a related point to the sweetness and the bittersweet. She says, the word bittersweet is very subjective. How do you define bittersweet? What ending would be too bitter for you? What ending would be too sweet? Based on his calling, and this is based on George's calling, the end of Lord of the Rings bittersweet, how do you think George defines bittersweet? So the main thing here is that Frodo wins, but he pay, still has to pay the price. Um, the, the touch of the ring on his soul and the ring wraith's wound is corrupting him, and he can't really bear it. And so he's got to go to the blessed isles of the elves in order to sort of be purified and, and be healed of that stuff. He can't, he can't deal with it. And so that's, that's one of the bittersweet elements of it. And of course, when they get back to the Vale, they've still got to deal with Saruman working his evil. Um, so I think that's the main thing. And I talk about this all the time, that George is more interested in the cost of magic as opposed to, you know, the glorious shooting fireball magic. And so we should always ask ourselves about the cost. I think that's the key thing. So when we think about the ending of A Song of Ice and Fire, you know, I've talked about maybe John will be the new cold hands, wandering the north, no friends. I mean, think about cold hands. I, I pointed this out in the Green Zombies theory. Cold hands' lot in life kind of sucks. He wanders around the frozen tundra, nothing to do, no one to talk to, for years on end. Just, I mean... I hate being bored, you guys. That sounds bad to me. So if John, like, is you know can't come south of the wall and he's just got to range the haunted forest forever, that's that's definitely bittersweet. Um, we could also get any kind of heroic sacrifice. Obviously, that's going to be a thing. Um, so if if we win, but almost everyone that we love dies, uh, that's going to be you know pretty bittersweet. So <laughs> that's something that we could see for sure. Uh, what would be too sweet? I mean, just everybody winning and, you know, and then they all ate ice cream. That would not work. Uh, but we're not going to get that, obviously. I think that, um, you know, Sansa, I mean, not Sansa, but either John or Danny sitting on the Iron Throne probably is too sweet to happen. If one of them does sit the Iron Throne, it's going to be like, you know, heavily scarred and damaged, something like that. Um, but I, I tend to, the more I think about it, the more I like the no... Iron Throne ending. So, what if then there is a comet? Maester Mary asks. Yeah, I, I don't think the show's going to give us our moon meteor apocalypse. I don't think, I think the moment is past for that. But you never know. I mean, you guys know I'll be screaming like a little girl at a, Britney, at a Backstreet Boys concert if that happens. So, 
Mod Mary with a super chat just because you're super cool. Oh, thanks. Sacrifice Melisandre. Well, you know, she's if anyone will climb onto the pyre willingly, it's it's Melisandre. So that, that could happen. I'm very against the idea of Danny being Nissa Nissa for John. I guarantee that's not going to happen. All right. So, oh, what's this, Lady Isabel? I have a new theory that the new comet will be a near miss sort of thing, almost hitting, but humanity gets saved in some sort of way. That would be cool. We'll see. I, my whole thing is that if uh, Moon Meteors triggered the old Long Night, then they'll probably trigger the new Long Night. So I think that for the most part, it'll be a bad thing when the comet comes. But who knows? Something's got to clear away all that smoke and debris, right? Yeah, Lightbringer has not been uttered on the show probably in a while. That is, That does seem to be true. All right, so Mundane, Lord of High Tedium, whose sigil is a wormy red apple on a black field, says George enjoys using homophones and oxymorons. Could he have combined the two in Sir Arthur Dane, who would be half a day and half a night? Arthur Dane, so he's, he's part day, but he's also Arthur the Knight, so half night. So it's kind of, it's actually kind of cool because I've talked about how House Dane does actually give us the light and dark side of the Morning Star Venus mythology. We get Dark Star Dane and the Sword of the Evening uh, Dane, as well as, you know, the Sword of the Morning characters. So, yeah, that's cool. Arthur Dane, even right in his name, he's, he's uh, half day, half night. That's pretty cool, man. Jojo Lady Dane says, they might end the very last episode with a moon meteor comet apocalypse. Yeah, that's bittersweet. We've beat the others, but oh, look. Perhaps. Do you think Melisandre is using the people she's burning for blood magic? Well, she's only done it a couple times, but yes, in the books, supposedly after she burned Lord Sunglass on Dragonstone, they had favorable winds all the way up to the wall. And, of course, in the show, they burned Shireen and were trying to make the uh, snowstorm go away. That didn't work out so well. Lesha Ash easily. Hey, Lesha, good to see you. Just saying hi, and thanks for all you do. Oh, thanks. Just saw your name today when I was going through Patreon messages. Let's see. Lady Lane Fairchild, if we see Howland Reed, where will it be? Um, I would just love if Howland, like, they're all chilling at Winterfell, and you just see Howland, like, walking up the road with like a little a little one of those sticks with a little like a little sack a little handkerchief sack on the end of the stick and he's just walking along i'm helen reed doing like huckleberry finn routine or something that'd be cool oh meal huckleberry what will cause the next moon meteor event well a comet of course the question is how do we call comets i don't know maybe with a comet binder horn i mean dragon binder horn. i mean comet binder horn there you go Stephen Hart says, I love what you do, but why don't you make any fluff content like other creators? Your theories are fire. A little clickbait could be good for the coffers. So Stephen Hart, the closest I get to that is the uh, LML and 15 series. I did two episodes of that, and I have a couple more scripts written, but I've been behind on podcast editing. So I haven't done any more LML and 13s, but I do have plans to keep doing that. And yes, guys, that's definitely how I'm going to grow the channel. Um, I wouldn't call it clickbait, but obviously shorter material has a much wider penetration into the market if you will so i do need to climb back on that horse hopefully i can make a couple of those during the show season um but i i really guys what i need to do is hire somebody to help me with audio editing 
that is the thing that I really need to do to clear some time off my schedule so I can do more writing and more video stuff. So if anybody out there is uh, good audio editing and has done podcast audio editing, uh, feel free to hit me up and let's talk. So Terry of the Citadel asks, what if Azor High only hit the moon with the comet by accident while deflecting it from the planetos? I actually have thought about that. That's like the one way that um, the whole Azor High striking the moon with the comet thing could be like done with good intentions. Um, and there's also moon shield symbolism. But I think that's because the moon ends up shielding the Earth from comets naturally, not because Azor High used the moon as a shield. But it is an interesting idea. I can't rule it out. And, you know, I would say, Terry, if you want to explore that further, go look go look at some of the main um, sun, moon, comet scenarios that I've laid out in my Bloodstone Compendium and see if it sort of fits that theme that you're talking about and if there's a way to interpret it that way. Um, Dark Mother rolling in late. What? How am I not notified immediately? Well, make sure you have clicked the notification bell, guys. Uh, it's not enough to subscribe to the channel. You got to click on the little bell icon so you get a little doo-doo-doo when, uh, when I go live. But hey, Dark Mother, I fleshed out your Patreon nickname, by the way. You are Dark Mother Roin, goddess of waterways, terrestrial and celestial. She who watches over the flock. Thank you, Dark Mother, because you support so many people. You're very supportive, so thank you. Which sound again? Uh, I forget. I make all kinds of sounds. I already forgot what sound it was. Oh, it was a doo-doo-doo. Maybe it's that one. Yeah, I had to invent a whole new Patreon tier for her. Um, she she came in with her own donation level, and so, uh, yeah. she. If you want to be a dragon, though, I can make you into a dragon, but she wanted to be the Mother Roin, and so she is the Dark Mother Roin. But let's read some more Patreon names, because I love you guys. You're the wind beneath my wings. The reason I can spend so much time doing this, otherwise I would not be able to do it. All right, so we've got Bronze Stares, of course, of the Lily White Scales and Bronze Horns, Wing Bones, and Spinal Crest, a wise old dragon who riddles with sphinxes. It is said that Bronze Stares once forged a life-size Valerian Steel Sivast set in a single night. That was my original Bronze Stares saying. Then I've got Vesperis the Nightbringer, the Shadowfire Dragon whose scales are dark as smoke, whose horns, wing bones, and spinal crest are the color of molten silver, and whose eyes are like two black moons. It is said that Vesperis is the secret spawn of Meraxes and is known by some as the Phoenix of the Hellholt. Malari's the Weird Dragon, whose scales are white as bone, and whose horns, wing bones, and spinal crest are as red as blood. Malari's, who is native to Stigai, is the first known Stygian dragon to leave that corpse city at the heart of the shadow in over five millennia. It is rumored that Malaris is inhabited by the spirit of a long-vanished sorceress from a shy called Melanie Lot 7, who, of course, has the Melanie Lot 7 YouTube channel. And Bronze Darius also has the Bronze Darius YouTube channel. And then there is Yggdragaris, the Stormworm, the dragon of the lock, whose scales are sea green and whose horns, wing membranes, and spinal crest are burnt orange. It is said that Yggdragaris, a descendant of Nidhogg, is foretold to encircle the well of Mimir until the days when the long winter comes again. All right. Uh, Mariah Gilmore, what role will Sansa have second half of season eight? Well, she seems to be the one the best at coordinating logistics, and there's going to be a damn lot of logistics. I would expect the flight from Winterfell of all the refugees probably will be managed by her, 
and that's going to be a heroic effort. So I expect to see Sansa saving a lot of lives. That's what I expect to see. And possibly sitting on either the Iron Throne or the High Seat of Winterfell. Uh, and then we've got, let's see. Um, so Danny McKay was asking about the Sansabration and asked about Sansa's. Okay, so I got the Sansa Endgame. And uh, thanks, the Sansabration was a ton of fun. Definitely enjoyed that one. Do you think Viserion could be more a White Walker versus a regular White? Um, yes, I do think. No, actually, no. Okay, I take that back. So I think that he, you know, the, the showrunners have, have completely just blurred the lines here, but I consider him to be a whited dragon because he died and then was resurrected. Um, but it's a dragon, it's a magical being, so maybe there's also a, a transformation. It does seem to have, you know, the blue fire now, so it's a white walker dragon. It's, it's whatever you want to call it. I, I don't think we can draw a clear line. What I'm more interested in is uh, what will we see in the show? Will we see the classic ice dragon that is spoken of or will we see a whited Viserion? I think we're going to get one of those two. So let me ask you guys. Do you think we're going to get an, a classic ice dragon, such as is described in the World of Ice and Fire, more like the ice dragon novel? Or will we get a whited Viserion? And it will be Viserion if anybody is whited. Yeah, right, exactly, Mary. It's weird because the blue eyes, it definitely reminds you of the baby transformation Night King scene. Um, and it does seem like the fire of... Like, for example, if it was just a whited dragon, it shouldn't have fire anymore because it's just basically the, the corpses are animated by necromancy. Necromancy means the whites are just meat. They're just, they're just meat suits that, like, they're being, you know, animated by some remote force. Um, the white dragon is not exactly the same because it has, it has its fire still, and now it's like icy fire. So you could imagine that you know, Night King basically whited the thing, but then went one step further and injected it with his ice fire or some shit. I don't know. Who knows? Mary says we'll get neither in the books. Mary, you buzzkill. Lickable jacket. It looks like a fruit roll-up. Ooh, Bernie. That sounds erotic. Yes. Uh, it smells like the 70s. I'll just say that. You can't exactly put this thing in the washer. And I got it at the pawn shop, so it just is what it is. All right, let me go flip back to my Patreon question. Ah, I have a question from June Coates, also known as Synxia. What's the rest of it? Synxia, frozen fire queen of the summer snows, weaver of winter's coat and burner of winter's wick, member of the Long Night's Watch. Thank you. And a longtime patron, a two-year patron plus. She asks, I have a question slash musing. Not mythology or symbolism based, but it's been in my head for a few days. Do you think that Ariane Martel's story, heretofore, good word use, is setting up is setting her up to eventually be part of Fagon's downfall? Could she eventually end up being a queen maker after all, that queen being Daenerys? She certainly seems to have strong feelings about female heirs being supplanted by males. That's definitely true. Although Fagon is set up to resemble the rightful heir from a Targaryen POV, she might cotton on to the ruse, another good word used there, <laughs> June, um, and side with Danny, assuming that he is actually a Blackfire, which I believe he is, either a Blackfire or a Pisswater Prince, that Fagon. Uh, so wouldn't that be neat? This is interesting, because everybody assumes that uh, House Martell, whose story certainly seems like a tragedy... Um, Sorry, guys, I, I lost my train of thought. I saw someone in the chat saying that they are an editor, Adam Stump. Well, 
I can't drop my email, Adam, in the chat here. Uh, but if you hit me up on either Facebook or Twitter, then we can talk. Uh, yes, but in any case, so everyone assumes that the Martells are going to continue along this very tragic course that they've been on. Everything they do seems to basically be very convoluted folly uh, from Doran to Arian to Quentin. And so most people predict it's going to basically end in folly and tragedy, farce and tragedy, if you will. Uh, but I would love that if Arian manages to subvert that narrative, figure out that Fagon is fake, and go over to Danny's side. That would be friggin' awesome. Um, I don't know if it'll happen. It might be too, you know, too happy. But you know, you could see most of House Martell, you know, sort of pay the price for their plotting. But maybe Arian, you know, in the dungeon has a change of heart or some shit and, and comes around. I would love that. I do like Ariane a lot, not just because she's sexy and she's a temptress and all that shit. I, I like her train of thought and her sort of, she's an, it's an interesting story of, it, it sort of continues George's narrative of women that have been, you know, sort of kept away from power uh, and how they feel about that. We get a lot of that reflection in Cersei's arc and Danny's arc. Arian definitely continues that sort of analysis, and I find all that really interesting. So, all right, all right, good question. Rob S asks in the books, Jamie has immense guilt regarding Rhaegar and his family. They haven't addressed this in the show. Do you think anything will come from this in season eight, if and when Jamie learns about John and RLJ? If not, how do you think book Jamie would react to the news? That's a really good angle, Rob. I never thought of that. In fact, I'd love to get in deep geeks thoughts on that um jamie does have guilt regarding rhaegar and his family we saw that in jamie's weirwood stump dream when uh rhaegar and the kingsguard ghosts rode out of the darkness jamie's defensive uh, and he starts making excuses for himself you can tell he feels bad about it uh, and we're also left with that moment where rhaegar promises jamie things will be different when i come back and then he died and so you know in the 17 years since Jamie is not a big fan of Robert, and he probably thinks back to that moment, like, ah, what if Rhaegar had won? That might have worked out better for us, huh? So I'm wondering when, um, yeah, when RLJ's truth is revealed, Jamie could absolutely feel sort of in a similar way that John Con feels. So John Con is like, I failed the father, I will not fail the son, because he thinks Fagon is Rhaegar's son. Jamie might sort of feel the same way, you know? Um, so yeah, that's interesting. And obviously John Kahn was in love with Rhaegar. Jamie's not in love with Rhaegar, but I do think that'll be a really cool angle. I expect to get discussion of it, both on the show and in the books. I expect John and Jamie to have a lot of good discussion. That's definitely something I'd look for. And that's going to be really fascinating. If anybody has thoughts in the chat, I will read them if they can get them in quickly. Uh, the actual <laughs> Matt Pathini or uh, Pat Metheny is, is who he's talking about. Famous fusion jazz guitar player. Do you think the job of heading up the White Walker daycare is considered a cushy one, or do they make the officer Farva of the White Walker posse do it? Yeah, so they were talking about that on In Deep Geek. Is there a White Walker daycare? When the babies are transformed, do they then grow up? Do they go to White Walker Junior High School? Uh, I tend to think not. I tend to think in the books, the reality is that the Craster babies that are given to the White Walkers are basically transformed or their life spirits or mana is harvested 
and then a, a white Walker body is kind of created. So I do not think, I do not think there is white Walker daycare. Although I love joking about white Walker daycare. I think it's hysterical and they kind of implied it in the show. They didn't really like, <laughs> it just leaves you wondering. So do they like pass the baby? You hold him for a while. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Do the other like white Walker aunts and come along and like sniff the baby and stuff. Like, I don't know. <laughs> you guys know that's a thing, right? Ants love to sniff babies. I'm not sure why that is, but uh, okay. So yeah, very accelerated growth. Like the clones could be, could be who will narrate T. Wow. Now that Roy Detrice has passed rest in peace. I'm a big Roy Detrice fan. Some people used to rag on his mixing up the voices sometimes, but I absolutely love the guy's work. Here, here, Stephen Hart. I love um, Roy Detrice's work. I don't know who's going to do it. The guy that did um, Fire and Blood was pretty good. And uh, I thought Viserys did a great job on the Duncan Egg trilogy, although I think he might be better for the Duncan Egg stories and not the series proper. Um, I thought Jorah was a pretty good reader, too. The Jorah actor. But I don't know if he's quite as versatile enough to do the main series. What do you guys think? Probably be someone we've never heard of. I'd be okay if um, I'd be okay if it was uh, the guy who did Fire and Blood. Yeah, people are shouting out for In Deep Geek. I asked uh, I asked In Deep Geek earlier if he would uh, read the audiobook for my fantasy novel whenever I write it. He said yes. He said yes. So we'll see. All right, all right. Um. Let's keep going. So I got a question from Tom Art of House Baratheon, the Purple Pilgrim, Hefter of Hephaestus's Hammer, and Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Capricorn, whose words are, pressure makes diamonds. And that's you, Terry T. Hope you like that one. Just came up with that today. So George has gone far out of his way to demonstrate that Targs and their babies don't suffer from typical sicknesses and things like that. Yet when Catelyn is telling John uh, is telling the story of Jon Snow as a baby. She's describing him as being sick. Is that a show only mistake, or do you? Yes, that's what it is. Um, there's nothing more to it. That's a show only faux pas, or just you know a bit of lore that they didn't carry over to the show. But uh, and then he says also Jojen tells Bran that he has seen the Tower of Joy as well. Do you think this implies that Jojen may have known about Jon's parentage after all? Yes. That could be. It could be. I'm, I'm interested in how much Howland may have told Jojen and Mira. I'm not sure if there's a fact that precludes that from being possible. Jojen doesn't really ever talk about John with Bran, does he? I don't think he does. Uh, Terry of the Citadel with a 420 Super Chat, thanking me for the nickname. You're welcome there, Terry. Thanks for your support, buddy. Man, it's been a long time since I haven't had a guest on. This is rough. Can't take any breaks at all. This really is tough. I'm going to have to take a time out in a second. I think might have to. A little intermission music. Wonder Dog, a.k.a. 26 Art Girl. Another pillar of the community. Always showing up in the chat. Show question. When Shay was talking about protecting Tyrion in season two, she mentions that she will take the face off anyone who hurts him. Is it possible she is a faceless woman? I don't think so, but uh, Wonder Dog does come with some interesting clues about this, which I did want to mention. When Tywin entered the throne room on his horse to become Hand of the King by Joffrey, they made a point of the horse taking a dump before entering, um, perhaps a foreshadowing of Tywin's own stinky, stinky death. 
Uh, yes, I do believe that it is a foreshadowing of Tywin's death. I just don't think it's a clue about faceless men being involved. But I've never thought about that, and that is a good observation, because, of course, his wake is in the very same, um, not in the throne room, but in the Sept of Baylor. And, uh, of course, it stinks. So He says to his son that he will be eaten by maggots first before giving him casterly rock. Perhaps this was a foreshadowing of his being laid out on the altar after his death and the terrible smell, unless that was uh, poison. Uh, no, so I, I would say, again, there's a lot of unifying symbolism around Tywin's shitting gold and the idea of his, his reign being gilded, but actually shitty and rotten in the core. I think that's kind of the core of it. Like, he's got this golden reputation, but really he was very corrupt and bad on the inside, so... Um, like I said, I don't think that Shay is a faceless woman, but I love those two catches on Tywin's death. So thanks, 26 Art Girl. Rutherford the Brave, last minute question. Sorry if it's too late. Nope, it's not too late. I gotcha. Are there any small, almost inconsequential theories that you really like? For example, I really like Lady Gwyn's Lem Lemon Cloak equals Richard Lawnmouth theory. Yes, I do too. I love that theory. Um, I actually think Dawn is the original ice is one of these theories. I don't think Dawn is going to be the new Lightbringer, and I don't think that Dawn is going to be a major, major player. I could be wrong, but I don't think it will. Um, and so the whole idea that Dawn is the original ice actually doesn't matter to the story even one bit. It's only trivia, um, but I think it's cool. And I think that some of the mythical astronomy ideas are like that. There's just fun background stuff. Um, like... You know, I mean, most of what we talk about isn't quote-unquote essential to, like, the very main story. Um, like, we don't... For example, the, the whole idea that uh, Zora High became Night's King and that the burning ice magic of the others is actually just fire magic flipped. Like, we might find out that that's the case or that just might be symbolism that Martin wants to softly imply and he doesn't really need to spell it out. So, yeah. And I do love the Lemon Cloak Richard Lawnmouth theory, by the way. I'm interested in Crowfood's daughter's theory about the oily black stone having a connection to the shade of the evening trees. In fact, the shade of the evening trees are the ultimate, like, I'd love to find out about those, but probably they do not have anything to do with anything. You know, like, I don't think that we're going to go back to the undying and they're going to be a big part of the end. Uh, but the, but they're sending us some really interesting message and Crowfood's daughter has some really cool theories on the, uh, the disputed lands YouTube channel about the oil black stone and the, the uh, shade of the evening trees. So that's one of my favorite, more obscure theories. I would say Teresa L on Patreon, dear LML. First of all, I love the new old Old Ones, Old Bones, Old Crones series, and also the Roundtable Think Tank. Thank you, Teresa. And I'll just ask you guys, you know, it's kind of a change in format there. In any case, yeah, so guys, um, I did I did the, uh, well, my name, Isabel, is asking, why has no one compared the MA symbol to the new image of the black hole? Shaking my damn head, y'all. Yeah, no, I was, I mean, I just, I assumed that that's what everyone thought when they looked at it. Uh, you know, the moon was a black hole in the sky. That's definitely a reference to the eclipsing moon. Um, so, yeah. I have no idea what this channel is about, but I dig it. That's cool, Lola. Glad to have you. It's about symbolism and mythology 
and sometimes silly wigs. Uh, but we like to have fun. So, guys, I've been doing the old the uh, Sacred Order of Green Zombies series. I did the the first three episodes. Um, then we did one of the Zodiac episodes. I still got another one to do. Then we switched on to this whole um, old ones thing, which is kind of different. And the um, you know what's what I really changed up is when we got to the old crones part. So instead of scripted episodes, I start we did the whole you know brain trust thing. I had quotes pulled and sort of organized, but then we gave them to the panel and let all the ladies chime in. And I was tickled pink with how it went. I thought it went really well. Um, I thought it was a good way to go because I wasn't quite sure of everything that I was looking at in the way that I usually like to be before I write a whole script. Um, but I, I knew what I wanted to think about and felt like giving it to everybody and having them talk was, was really productive. And we got a lot of, a lot of lady myth heads in on, in on the party. So just, yeah, I mean, I thought that was good. I just thought I'd ask you guys if you liked that or if you just thought I was being lazy and, uh, avoiding writing scripts, <laughs> Dark Mother says she loved it. Right on, Dark Mother. I thought it was awesome. So, uh, Teresa L. says, To build on what Gretchen said during the first discussion panel about Lady Stoneheart, about justice and the bifurcation into passion and duty. That was a good section. I love that section. I'd like to add that this is also what the phrase, fire consumes, ice preserves, tells us. Gretchen said Lady Stoneheart is kind of frozen, unable to move on, sort of trapped, so we have a preserved hull, a shell, and inside is a burning, consuming hatred. Maybe you or someone else has already mentioned it during round three. I was not able to listen. That's really cool. I think because we sort of almost got there, Teresa. We were talking about maybe it's the shell that's frozen and the fire's inside, but I didn't connect it to that, to the um, the fire consumes ice preserves. That's That's really interesting. So the whole idea of frozen fire, and of course... This mimics the uh, the dragon locked in ice, ice moon template, where you have an ice moon, but then you have the black fire moon meteor penetrating it and embedding itself inside. And then that sort of fire inside the ice moon fuels the burning cold energy of the others, or maybe it can even break out of the ice moon like, you know, like a dragon waking from its egg. That's what John's resurrection is going to be like symbolically, like the dragon locked in ice waking. So Stoneheart, yes, we probably should look at her the same way. The fire is inside of her. The outside part is frozen. And so that's why this gets into like the whole ice and fire. When you mix them together, it's more potent. Um, and by the way, Teresa, Ball the Bard is in the chat um, enjoying your, your comments here. So whether you're watching right now uh, or on the replay, I uh, hope you're getting a kick out of that. You're part of the circle. You're no longer the person sitting next to the billboard, pretending to eat ice cream with the people on the billboard. <laughs> You're in the circle. We're eating ice cream together. In any case, um, yes, yeah, so Lady Stoneheart with the frozen shell, the fire's on the inside, and usually fire consumes, but since it's being contained in a frozen shell, it's not burning out. It's, it's frozen fire. It's perpetual fire. And so this is like the flame that burns without being consumed, and that's what dragon glass candles are. Dragon glass is frozen fire, and the candle that it has is a flame that is not consumed. So George is showing us over and over again that the normal, normally the way that fire consumes can be preserved. It can be, it can be fixed with ice, and so ice and fire together always makes 
it always makes the um it's the most potent weapon that's what i'm trying to say so like for example ned's sword is valerian steel but it's called ice so that's a symbol that the stark sword needs to be an ice and fire sword right and the others have burning ice and you know the the what the black brothers have the frozen fire weapons so this is cool yeah thanks good job teresa tying lady stoneheart into that whole dichotomy i'll have to continue to think about that and we'll also have to think about um how that affects our perception of nissa nissa and corpse queen corpse queen could be frozen on the outside looking moon pale and all that stuff but inside maybe there's a little flame of nissa nissa or something like that uh, okay thanks mary thanks for coming by i will see you later Uh, so, continuing with Teresa's question, therefore, I want to come back to another thought that troubles me since some weeks and is related to the topic above. In a lecture about ancient Chinese art, I learned that lacquer objects are made of resin from the lacquer tree. They were used as daily objects and therefore were also given into ancient monarch tombs. Uh, one example from the Han Dynasty, and maybe I shall screen share this. Let's take a look. Is it cool? Uh, that's a lacquer bowl. Okay, yep. Let's see here. So here is a red lacquer bowl. That's pretty cool. I can definitely picture Quay's mask looking something like this. And this is obviously where this comment is going uh, to Quay's mask. And so then she says, um, one of the lacquer feet, uh, she, could Quay's mask be made of weirwood resin, she asks. And I know I'm still screen sharing. I'm going to give you another picture in a second. One of the lacquer features is it preserves. So when I read the world book, I saw the connection they built between Yi Ti and Asian culture. And even in the show, Quay's mask reminds me of some of those ancient jade suits, which were also found in the above mentioned emperor tombs. And here's a picture of that. Whoa. You guys seeing this? This looks exactly like Quay's mask, doesn't it? That's very cool. This is life size jade burial suit with gold thread from the Western Han Dynasty circa 2006 to 2009 BCE, excavated from the tomb of King Chu of, oh gosh, I probably shouldn't try to read this. Uh, but yeah, very cool. Let me even just drop the link in the chat and you can check that out. Very cool. Yep, there's your jade emperor. So maybe this is a connection between a combination of magic of the Empire of the Dawn and the weirwood magic. Maybe one of the things the old dragon people in Ashai learned from the children of the forest, uh, as was mentioned. And I do imagine that Shadowbinders need something to preserve their power, their life force, or their inner flame if it's consumed by fire magic. Guys, this is the principle we were just talking about. Fire consumes unless you have some sort of way of freezing it, tempering it with ice. So Joe Magician's Whisper Jewels, shout out to the Joe Magician YouTube channel, check out the Whisper Jewel video if you haven't, are kind of pointing in that direction too. And couldn't Morna's weirwood mask, Morna White Mask, has that weirwood mask, remember? Couldn't that be a kind of non-magical transmission of that idea like the Ironborn CPR ritual? Maybe it's nothing, but of course, if you find the... Okay, yeah, so this is a cool idea, guys. I like this. I think that we were just talking the other day on Twitter about dead weirwood and what it represents, meaning weirwood that's been cut down and made into something like a weirwood mask. There's a weirwood table in the um, 
the, the Lord Commander's Chamber in the White Sword Tower with Kingsguard live. The High Septon has a Weirwood staff. Uh, there's the Drowned Priest. Help me out, guys. The first one, he had a Weirwood staff. There's the Weirwood Throne in the Eyrie that's made from cut Weirwood. And we know that Weirwood turns to Pale Stone when it petrifies. And so Pale Stone is a very icy symbol, like such as we see at the Eyrie or the Sept of Baylor. Pale stone is also what Dawn is said to be made from, a pale stone of magical powers. And so that pale stone phrase is one that we've picked up as alluding to icy symbols. And so we came to the preliminary conclusion, if you will, that uh, cut, cut down weirwood or petrified weirwood seems to be an ice symbol. And that kind of makes sense, right? Because a growing weirwood tree has the leaves that look like hands of blood or a blaze of flame. And it's the image of the, the burning bush, Moses's burning bush, which burns, but is not consumed. I talked about all that many times. So the growing weirwood, if it's not frozen, if it's not dead or poisoned, that to me is primarily a fire symbol. Although it could be a certain kind of unity symbol, perhaps. But then we see weirwoods that are frozen over, such as in the Vermeer prologue, it's got a pale, pale shadow of a weirwood armored in ice, which is all others' language. You guys know that. Fingers of frost crawling up the weirwood. And then we have another frozen weirwood um, on the those one of the islands that Stannis has camped out near. So I think that pale stone, cut weirwood, that's all basically ice symbolism. So when we talk about weirwood masks or the possibility of Quaithe's lacquered mask being weirwood, which I totally love this idea... It's, it's, the, it's the ice element. It's the freezing of fire, symbolically at least. Just as we talked about the most potent symbols, you have an ice symbol tempering the fire symbol, keeping it going. So the lacquer mask could be that. And I've definitely identified the idea of Quay's red mask as being similar to the weirwood mask, the weirwood face being like a mask, a wooden mask for the people who are inside. Because remember, this is all weirwood goddess stuff. All the Nissa Nissa figures, even Melisandre, who's a fiery priestess, she's a Nissa Nissa weirwood goddess figure. Melisandre looks like a damn weirwood. Uh, red hair and eyes and all that stuff. So I think what's going on is with Quave. Quave is just another weirwood goddess figure. She's probably more like a crone figure, comparable to the ghost of High Heart or Lady Stoneheart. And her red wooden mask is essentially her version of the weirwood face mask. It's like a dead wooden face, uh, Lady Isabel says. My name is Isabel. Exactly. Um, and lacquered, uh, lacquered armor is also something worn by the dead, she's saying. Well, we just that's what we just saw. So, Okay, so that's cool. Yeah, this, this all kind of fits in. And, of course, Quaithe, we don't know. She's probably preserving her life. Um, via magic, since she's probably Alyssa Farman. Woo! Shout out to Painkiller Jane. And the Alyssa Farman is Quaithe theory, which I totally think George is kind of gardenering in retroactively. I don't know about y'all, but... All right, so she goes on. So maybe this is a connection between combination... Okay, I already read that. Never mind. Uh, okay, cool. So thanks, Teresa. That was a kick-ass question. Thank you very much. All right. And that is the end of the Patreon questions that I got. So, guys, it's up to you to keep me going now. It's up to you in the chat. Or I can just start freelancing. 
Which yeah, nice job, Teresa. Um, if we're not friends on, uh, not retcon, Stephen. Uh, what I mean is Gardner. So we know that he is a gardener, and although I think he laid out a lot of his stuff at the beginning, um, he gardeners in the details. Like the classic example of this is Blood Raven. From the beginning, George and George has basically said this. He always knew that the three-eyed crow was going to be a Targaryen green seer. But he didn't know who it was, what his name was, what his backstory was. And then eventually he came up with the character of Blood Raven and the Black Fires and all that shit. So that's gardening in the details after having the main idea already set. So he's always had Quaid, obviously, um, you know, in his mind, but maybe he hasn't decided who Quaid really is. And while he was writing this Targaryen stuff about Alyssa Farman and Sunchaser, it just occurred to him how effing cool it would be if she sailed around the world to a shy and then became Quave. Because, of course, uh, Alyssa Farman steals the three eggs that in almost all certainty are the ones that Danny gets from Illyrio. So you would have Alyssa Farman putting those eggs into circulation. They come back to Danny, and then Alyssa Farman as Quave appears to Danny in dreams to help her hatch the same eggs. So makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and again, that's Painkiller Jane's theory. So that's what I mean by gardening in the, uh, the details. Sarah Oscarson says, the sacrifice in the pact, men for the humans to breed for... Okay, so you're asking what each party sacrificed in the pact. So yes, this is interesting. Okay, so why this gets at a, a really a question that I've always had that a lot of people don't talk about. Why do the children of the forest need human green seers? Why do they need Blood Raven? Why do they need Bran? If the children of the forest have green seers, then um, why do they need these human green seers? And see you later, Bale the Bard. Thanks for coming through. Um, that's a damn good question. I think the answer is because the green seers are rare uh, and the children's numbers have dwindled so so few that they don't have very many uh, they don't have very many green seers left. And so by putting those genetics into the human race, perhaps it's an attempt to find more green seers. So that could be part of it. And that could have been part of the pact, yes, because we know that the pact is where uh, humans adopted the worship of the children of the forest and the old gods and all that stuff. Now, I think that the pact was formed during the long night, uh, of course. And so the main driving factor for, the, for them to work with each other would be to fight the, the White Walkers. So that's a pretty, that's the main motivation there, I think. But okay, so Tony3483 says, What do you think will happen in Volantis and Tiwau? More specifically, what is the widow's plan? And in what way does it rely on Danny? Well, it's I think it's pretty well spelled out that uh, the followers of Relore in Volantis um, are many, and all the slaves worship Relore, and even half of the tigers, who are the soldiers, slave soldiers that the nobility essentially relies on to keep the peace. So that's telling you right there, like there could be a major revolt even amongst the tigers, let alone the slaves there. So all they're waiting for is a, is a match to light the fire. And all Danny has to do is show up or even start sailing that way and get close and they'll, they'll go. So yeah, 
Um, this this is totally totally going to be. I, I'm excited for it. Um, again, like I said, Danny does burn people, but for the most part, she burns people that need burning. Uh, if you know, adopting sort of a more cruel medieval mindset for a moment, like there is a lot of bad people in the world. I'm not sorry that she crucified slave masters. I mean, you could, if you look at it from Danny's perspective, you can say, you know, she's becoming a killer and that's changing her character. That's true. But those slave masters deserved, you know, whatever cruel punishment. And again, in the real world, I'm not in favor of capital punishment, but I don't also weep for the slavers either. And so when we get to Volantis, like these are, these are people that are deeply racist, um, that are very elitist and classist. And I'm not saying they necessarily deserve to die, but when you are the rich people in a city of slaves and you depend on slaves for your way of life, Sometimes a slave rebellion happens. Um, so, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, you can say two, two wrongs don't make a right. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I've, slavery is pretty bad. And if you're enslaving other human beings, there's a certain amount of karma that might be coming your way is kind of what I'm saying. And uh, if anybody does deserve, you know, swift retribution and fierce justice, then it, it's slavers. I mean, they're at the top of the list. And the Volunteers are slavers. Um, they're ready to start a war. They're sending all of their slave soldiers over to Marine to die in a war just to preserve the institution of slavery and crush Danny. So, you know what I'm saying. Um, and not to get too far afield here, but Danny is coming to Volantis. She's going to probably trigger this slave revolt. And it's for the most part going to be a good thing. I mean, I, I'm, I'm pro slave revolt. I don't know about y'all, but now at the same time, we know that George doesn't ever paint anything to be sweet and perfect and beautiful. There will be some injustice. There'll be people who don't deserve to die. They get caught up in it. And George will show us that George will show us uh, whatever moral and human cost there is to be paid there because that's the way he writes. Um, so that's, you know, that's, everything is always complicated. There's nothing ever straightforward. And I think, uh, I think this will be, this will be the same way. Like for the most part, you'll probably feel good about the slaves overthrowing the masters, but there'll be some moral ambiguity there too. Uh, and yeah, we'll see what happens. We will see. Good question. Uh, is the Esso slave revolt mirroring a future event in Westeros? Who are the Westerosi slaves? The whites. Okay, so this is a... I'm very good, glad you brought this up. I don't know how to change names. And that's turning into a pretty notable name, by the way. So don't ever change it at this point. That's, that's, that's you. You're like, sir, not appearing in this film. <laughs> to make a Monty Python joke. So the whites, yes. The whites are slaves. And when we talk about themes in the story... Um, slavery is a big theme, liberty, freedom, agency, uh, both obviously for women in the context of patriarchy and, and medieval ish, uh, society, as well as, you know, class struggle, um, people that are becoming slaves, uh, because they were chasing power. There's all kinds of slavery themes going on. And the whites are a part of that. Absolutely. They are the magical slaves and Knights King essentially is, a magical slave master. And that's why I think it's interesting that when you look at Danny, it's like, well, what does she do, right? She burns stuff with dragons. 
and she frees slaves. She kind of seems perfect for the situation at hand where we've got a bunch of slaves being held captive by White Walkers. Uh, so whatever you think about Danny, this is definitely round peg, round hole here. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> pokey pokey. That is, that's, uh, I, of course, when I shared the black hole image, that's what I did. I shared the, with the two gifts, the one, the gift like this and the one like this. Like, not, 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 not run the jewels. No, it's uh, pokey pokey. <laughs> so, King Aegon the Fourth Targaryen. Do I agree that without the Iron Throne, Westeros will be plunged back into petty kingdom wars? There is no way Westeros can become one huge republic either. Yeah, I, that's an interesting question. So, we melt down the Iron Throne, right? It's a symbol of imperialism and conquest. We got rid of it. Yay! Cool. So now we're back to a bunch of rival kingdoms. Of course, there's going to be war. And that's part of the bittersweet ending. Like, George isn't going to give us an ending where, like, again, and now they all ate ice cream. That's not going to be the ending. We might, you know, only mostly get rid of the others to sort of see see a hint. The cold mist swirling in the north. Oh, maybe they're going to come back. It's one little White Walker baby left in a little playpen somewhere with his ice rattle. Chicka, chicka, chicka. I'm going to catch you guys. I just regressed 25 years watching those hand gestures. I'm so sorry. I know. It's lowbrow stuff. Yeah, it's bad. I apologize. Apologize to everyone, especially huge erection. If I offended, I apologize. All right. So uh, let's see. All red priests are either given to the red temple or bought as slaves. No adult becomes a red priest. They're owned and indoctrinated from childhood. What's that about? Well, it's, it's Wheezy Squeeze Box. That's yet another clue that those Reloris are not the good guys either. They want a long summer without end. That's, you know, maybe a little better than a long winter, but not really. It's, it's just as bad. You got the shadow babies, burning children. They love Azor High, who's a wife-killing, moon-breaking MFer. So, yeah, it's, it's yet another clue that the Red Temple is, like, pretty twisted uh, and Relorism is, is pretty twisted. But at the same time, it's also the religion of the slaves in Volantis and seems like it's going to be powering a slave rebellion. So I don't know. Maybe it's a little more complex. Maybe that's something that we'll learn about in uh, the next book. We'll get, you know, if Danny returns to Volantis and it's a scene of action, maybe we'll get a little more exploration of all the slavery and. Um, what's going on there and the Red Temple and all that. So, yeah, that's it. I'm just acting out the spring ritual fertility. Good save. I don't know how to change names. Good save. Uh, Donnell Peoples, 666 Super Chat. Just posted to Patreon if you can pull it up. Yeah, I should be able to. Thank you. Thanks for the Super Chat. Was it a... Oh, I see it. So I recently saw... A Melisandre Nissa Nissa video. Can't remember the creator's name. He mentions that the only use of the word ecstasy in the books outside of the Azor High prophecy is in relation to Melisandre. Plus a number of references to her warmth and flaming heart banner. I know she's more than willing, but do you think she will be the sacrifice to recreate Lightbringer? So I've said that I'm very much against uh, Danny being Nissa Nissa, quote unquote, for John. Um, nine nickels. Yes, I will get it. Uh, I might've missed it. Let me go back. I'm just sorry. Yep. 
Got it. Nine nickels. I'll get you next. So I don't think Danny's going to get Nissa Nissed. Uh, I just don't think that makes any sense for a lot of reasons. Uh, just for her to serve as an adjunct to the male hero is super shitty. I just definitely don't think that's going to happen. Um, but Melisandre is a different story. She is somebody that could sacrifice herself, uh, both for the reason that she is uh, willing to um, do something like that because she's she appreciates the ultimate gravity of the situation. She may feel guilty about the some of the things that she's done. Um, I do think that Martin is showing us in the Melisandre POV chapter that she's not an inhuman monster. She does um, she does feel and and have compassion for people, but just has to do what she has to do, quote unquote. So I could see herself being a willing sacrifice if if that needs to happen. I kind of favor the idea that we don't need to stab any more people, especially women, to make any flaming swords. Um, but this is the one way that it could happen, I would say, is Melisandre. Um, and like I said, she if she's already participated in the burning of Shireen, then it could also be a certain amount of her paying a penance. Something like that could be. I also think Stoneheart's a possibility because that's another person who, like, you know, death would probably be a favor to her. She's not living a very fun experience. Um, the Stoneheart gives you the whole sword in the stone meteor stone stuff she's got the internal fire we've got Oathkeeper down in that cave and we've had uh jamie dream of him and brienne wield flaming swords in a cave casterly rock but still uh so yeah a stone heart is another one that could happen so let me go back for that's a good one donnell thank you and by the way what do you guys think uh, people are saying it's Talking Thrones, by the way, and it's a good video. So yeah, Talking Thrones. I'm I'm down with Dan. He's cool. Uh, yeah, so check that video out. And let's see here. Nine Nichols, Lara Roguer, warging cats with help from Pantera. Um, Lara Roguer was the wife of Aegon the Unworthy. Is that who she was? Warging cats with Pantera. I don't... That went over my head. Nine Nichols, you got to fill me in. I'll look for you in the chat. Make sure tag me here and, and uh, give me the backstory on that one. I'm not... Uh, yeah, I'm not up to that. Uh, oh, Pantera is a new deity from Fire and Blood. Thank you, Stephen. Yes, that's right. That is right. Um, let me look it up. Why, why, why would Lara Roguer be connected to uh, Pantera, though. I'm not sure about that. What do I think the Iron Bank will do at the end, King Aegon IV Targaryen? Well, I can tell you what YouTube channel to subscribe to. You want the Up From Under Winterfell channel. That's Maester Mary's channel. She's done a lot of stuff on um, Bravos, and she has some pretty developed ideas about where she thinks that is going. Um, I can get a lucrative vitamin water sponsorship offer, but you can only drink red well, rich red. I don't. I don't. Yeah, no. I. I wouldn't. It's got to be the yellow. Got to be the yellow, man. Has there been a definitive consensus on the Night's King sigil? It's show question. Still think it's a Kraken's body and related to the Salt Throne, the Old Ones, or the Blackstone somehow. I really don't know. It's pretty vague. It looks like a diamond and a circle. To me, it looks like something penetrating a moon, but uh, it's pretty vague. I hope we find out, but. I don't have a huge, I don't really have a strong guess on that. Sean MC, could the Black Gate be an original Stark 
trapped in a weirwood when the wall was created. It's magic, like the wall itself. It appears terrifying, but allows passage to the Night's Watch. Yeah, that's cool. Some people think it's the Grey King, or Brandon the Builder, or yeah, a Stark. All those things are possible. <clears throat> it might just be a weirwood face that's just part of the weirwood net. Could be Night's King. It's a very mysterious thing. I definitely want to know more about the Black Gate. It's one of the most inexplicable things in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, I have to say. Hella creepy. Shape-shifting cat goddess is Pantera. Lara was Viserys' wife, a true-born Valerian woman from Lys. It's rumored she used cats as her spies like Arya. Oh, gotcha. I mean, that's, yeah, that's pretty... That's, wow, that's very suggestive. I kind of remember that now from Fire and Blood. There's so much in there, and I haven't listened to it uh, just but the one time when I first got it. And I crammed it in like five days. So yeah, shape-shifting cat goddess. That does sound like skin-changing, doesn't it? I'll have to ask Maester Mary what she makes of that. That's very interesting. It's definitely a good, um, it's definitely a good Nissa Nissa weirwood goddess symbol. Um, the cat, so it's a catwoman symbolism of all the Nissa Nissa and the child of the forest people. Uh, but she's got the Valerian looks. And remember, we've been talking about Nissa Nissa. Like, was she a great empire of the dawn woman that looks like a Valerian? Or was she a child of the forest? It's possible she was both. And that's, symbolically, that's what Lara Roger is. She's a Valerian-looking person who worships a skin-changing cat goddess That's and has cat spies. That's very, that's awesome. Yeah, Nissa Nissa was a cat lady uh, because the children of the forest have cat eyes and all the weirwood goddess figures have catwoman symbolism like Lady Catelyn or, uh, you know, Cersei, who's a lioness. There's, there's a bunch more. That's in the Weirwood Goddess series, guys. Boss Mode asks, can you see Danny destroying the Iron Throne in the end, foreshadowing her House of the Undying when she heard the call of her dragons and didn't touch the throne? Yes, Danny, at the very least, she'll abandon her quest for the throne. At the very least, she'll do that. And could she help melt it down? Yes, that's possible too. And I do think that's a good foreshadowing in the uh, in that dream. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's what Danny's whole. That's why, like, the evil Danny theories miss the mark. Like, her whole thing is that she's got this lifelong dream of Westeros as her birthright, and her defining moment is quite obviously going to be when she gives that up and realizes that that's not her destiny and that that's not what she's supposed to be doing, not bringing more fire and blood to Westeros and conquering, but rather turning her fire and blood on the White Walkers. Uh, and it's going to be quite the sacrifice when she does that. So I don't know. If, if you can't see that coming, I don't know what to say. I could, I could definitely see that one coming a mile away. So Stone Dancer asks, could High Tide and Driftmark be examples of weirwood net partitions. Yes. Driftwood as a symbol of frozen weirwood. Yeah, we were we were trying to figure out what high tide means and we were struggling. But driftmark and driftwood, remember how I was saying like, you know, cut weirwood or petrified weirwood is on team ice. Well, driftwood would probably be in the same category, I would I would think. So, and the other one that Stone Dancer that I compared to that was Tarth, how they used to be 
Uh, the old castle on Tarth was Morn, and now they live at Evenfall Hall. And so Morn would be the icy dawn symbolism side of things, and Evenfall Hall would be the uh, you know Evenfall Nightbringer. That'd be the like the fiery, evil Azor High, you know, Even Star side of it. So perhaps, um, which is is high? Which is the new one? Is it um, high? High Tide is the new one, right? So maybe High Tide coordinates to Evenfall Hall. All right, all right. Going to go maybe another fifteen minutes. Man, it is definitely tiring doing it by myself. Sorry to be such a whiner. I used to do this uh, all the time. Should I keep repeating my awesome questions? I don't know how to change games. Well, let me uh, let's see. Let me go back. Do you think there is symbolism of King's Landing? Uh, and yes, bonus points for sarcasm. Do you think there is symbolism of King's Landing being built on the Blackwater Rush? Is King's Landing a weird city? Oh, what is this? Okay, so yeah, yes. We have stumbled upon this, that King's Landing is a weirwood symbol in some, in some cases. Uh, because so just like in the Winterfell Gods, when you've got the weirwood in front of the Black Pond, right? Well, so you've got King's Landing in front of Blackwater Bay and the Blackwater Rush. How many of you guys know in, um, in A Grove of Ash? I think I pretty well established the whole idea of the, the pillar of rising ash, the mushroom cloud also representing a burning tree, which is an ash tree, because Yggdrasil is an ash tree. And so just to go over that for everybody, basically what you have is, on one hand, you've got this story about the storm god's thunderbolt setting fire to a tree, and that burning tree is how the Grey King obtained the, quote, fire of the gods. So what this is, is it's telling you that the, the, the godly thunderbolt, which is the meteor, had something to do with setting the tree ablaze, the, the tree that gives the fire of the gods to man. And that's obviously the weirwood in A Song of Ice and Fire. That's the tree that gives the fire of the gods to man. And it looks like a burning tree because the red leaves are described as a blaze of flame in the woods one time. And they look like bloody hands too, blood and fire. And like I said, it's kind of a, um, it's a call out to Moses' burning bush. So in other words... There's a burning tree that grows from the place where the meteors strike. That's what the Grey King myth tells us. But then when we get into the Weirwood mythology, we find that the Weirwoods are based on Yggdrasil of Norse mythology, which is an ash tree. And so now Martin is making a very fun kind of dorky joke, saying that when an actual meteor hits the ground, what you'd get is a mushroom cloud, a rising pillar of smoke, ash, and debris. But it would look, a mushroom cloud looks like a burning tree when you look at it. It's got a main column, and then it's got this canopy. And it's like a whitish gray with like fire coming out. And so Martin has figured out that the burning tree that grows where the weirwood strike, where the meteor strike is analogous to the weirwood. And so over and over again, you get this weirwood ash symbolism. And what were we even talking about? I completely forgot. Oh, King's Landing. So King's Landing, symbolism of King's Landing, well, the king is the meteor because Azor Ahai Reborn correlates to this meteor. So it lands at King's Landing, throws up a pyre. That's the, that's the weirwood tree symbol. And we see that at the Battle of the Blackwater. We see 
huge pyres and towers of smoke reaching into the sky. We see the green fire clawing at the heavens and all kinds of cool weirwood stuff. There's all the green wildfire all over Blackwater Bay, which is weirwood fire of the gods stuff. So I hope that was a decent summary for those of you who may not be familiar with that theory. But King's Landing is a weirwood symbol, and there is the Blackwater Rush right beneath it. Uh, okay, um, I got a super chat here. Stephen Hart, I think we'll we'll get proof that the weirwood net roots are all connected underground, firing synapses like a human brain. Will we get proof? Yes. The weirwood roots appear to grow forever. Yes, I do believe in the Pando theory. I think all the weirwoods are connected. Would make a ton of sense. George is using a lot of mushroom symbolism with the weirwoods. I, this is a great tie-in. So it's not just the mushroom cloud idea. It's also the idea of fungus as the thing that connects root networks. And so if you know about this, it's not just the Pando organism. All forests actually talk to each other. The trees and forests, they communicate with each other through the root networks. They work to isolate you know, pests and diseases and stuff like that. They even shift nutrients through the, the root systems and stuff. And it's uh, mycorrhizal fungi that, that make that possible. And so George shows us blood raven with a big fat mushroom growing out of his cheek to sort of show us that there's a whole mushroom fungus symbolism with the, uh, with the weirwood network. So they're all connected. Yes, I do believe they're connected. They're at least connected like magically and symbolically. And I think they're probably often actually connected. And this opens up the possibility for the caves to run all the way through the continent too, which is cool and allows Bran to like pop up in the Winterfell crypts or something after he goes under the wall, if you like your tinfoil. Um, okay, and why is there some sort of silly argument going on in the chat? Stop that, please. Uh, Lady Isabel went... Oh, okay, I see. This, so this is a story about when George started writing A Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, George had been writing on the side, not writing a lot successfully at that time. One day, a close friend of his died. The event inspired him to quit his job and to write full-time. This was evidently a big event in George's life, so I think it should pop up in some way in the series. Since Sam seems to closely parallel George, how about Sam being left to tell other characters' story, especially perhaps John? Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I like that one. Um, you know, people have obviously uh, suggested um, that Sam might be the one, you know, to sort of survive and write the story, if you will. Uh, so, oh, so yeah, okay, this was not even when he started writing A Song of Ice and Fire, but just when he started writing. This was all the way back in the 70s. But yeah, okay, so same idea, though. Um, yeah, you, you could see that. That would be cool. Um, you'd have... John die and and sort of Sam be, you know, affected by that and mourn his loss and yeah, I I could see that being part of the bittersweet ending, you know, Sam saying a few words. Now his watch is ended after John dies or something. Oh man, I'm getting sad. Get sad, guys. All right. So yeah, good one. That was good. Good name, Isabel. Good one, Isabel. All right. So. Last uh, last call for questions. My name is Fagon. I'm definitely not real. I'm changing the words to that instead of I'm carrying the steel. I'm definitely not real. Just to just to poke you Fagon truthers a little harder. No, I'm kidding. I'm not totally sure about that one. Uh, King Aegon the Fourth Targaryen. I'm not reading that. Uh, I'm not going to delete that. 
but I'm not reading that either. <laughs> uh, somebody's been eating mushrooms. That's cool. Hope you hope that's going well for you. Hope you got a buddy. You know, and try to eat anything creative. That's what I recommend. Do I think the shade trees are the ironwood that shows up in the doors of the crypts? No, I think that ironwood is just symbolically parallel as black wood. I don't think that's a literal connection, but uh, I'm not not positive. So he's asking, Deep Solstice is asking about the weirwoods in the shade of the evening trees. Are they connected? So I think they might be. Yes, Amanda thinks they are. Um, I think they could be related species or the shade of the evening trees could be magically altered or the weirwoods could be magically altered. Who knows? Uh, I, I, what I do think is that the shade of the evening trees symbolically are telling us about the other's side of the weirwood net. That's what I think. Um, because the, 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 uh, the undying are obviously symbols of the others. They are cold blue shadows. They're gathered around a blue heart. Um, they want to, you know, capture Danny and sort of vampire on her energy and stuff. They really seem like others' analogs. And then they get burned by a Drogon, who's, I mean, that's exactly what's going to happen to the White Walkers. You're going to get burned by a Drogon, at least some of them. And they're all, so they're, they're at the House of the Undying with, with the shade trees. So to me, the shade, you know, the shade of the evening tree is showing you the the frozen or the corrupted half of the weirwood that the others inhabit. Um, that is my opinion. But Crowfood's daughter has more uh, sort of thinks that they're actually connected. So, uh, Pat Matheny, I don't know if ash trees are known for being more connected than other trees. I know that most forests are basically all connected through the fungus. I don't know that it's necessarily um, one kind of tree or another, but I have to look that up. I, I could be wrong. Or I should say, I just don't know. Do people think Danny is fertile? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if she's going to be able to have a baby. It's possible. Um, I'm, we don't know exactly what that experience was at the end of A Dance with Dragons where she was bleeding. That was a miscarriage or, or you know, her her period coming back. Uh, we're not sure. So <laughs> we're totally not sure. Maybe she can have a magic baby or something. Um, in the show, I'm really curious what they're going to do. I'm curious and a little bit worried what they're going to do with the idea of Danny being pregnant. That that definitely makes me nervous. So, Now, Stone Dancer, I think I'm going to sh save the uh, more blood magic Valerian stuff uh, for Crowfood's daughter's live stream. Like I said, I am going to do a live stream with Crowfood's daughter on her channel about the blood of the dragon and all that stuff. So I will save more talk with that. And I don't even think any, everybody's read the Dracomorph thing that I posted earlier today anyways. Oh, interesting. Uh, Carter Nichols says uh, she, he was uh, listening at the end of the Dance with Dragons and Danny had worms in her belly after eating berries. Just like you think the worms come from food in Valeria. And of course, those probably aren't little worms, but it could be George giving us more clues about the whole Dracomorph worm parasite idea. And those are the green berries too. So that's like eating, you know, weirwood paste or fire of the gods food. Yeah. So I have to go read that. Worms, huh? I'm going to eat me some worms. Sorry, Matt Pathini. I'll get it right next time.
So um, what do I think about Craster Targ theory? I think that symbolically Craster should be a Targ because I think that the first Night's King was Blood of the Dragon and it was his Blood of the Dragon seed that created the others in some sense, was used to create the others. And so Craster being the father of the others, I strongly suspect that his his father, who is a Night's Watchman supposedly, is either Maester Aemon or Bloodraven. And Cannibal's whereabouts, I'm not sure. Probably we're not going to see Cannibal. That would that'd be too much wish fulfillment. I can't I can't hope for things that wonderful. And that's Cannibal the Black Dragon from the Dance of the Dragons. Uh the Dracomorph Stone Dancer, that's on Patreon. And you're signed up for Patreon, so you, you should be able to find it. I posted it on Patreon. So all right, guys, I'm gonna go ahead and wrap it up. Uh we're just about at two hours here. And uh, yeah, thanks for everybody for coming. And thanks all of you patrons for sending in Patreon questions and for supporting the show. Yeah, writhing like worms, Carter Nichols says. Yeah, that's that sounds interesting. I have to go check that out. And yeah, if you want to see the Dracomorph theory, that is on Patreon. So sign up for Patreon if you haven't already. I would appreciate it. You get that and a few other essays too. In fact, I need to make sure I link everyone to the back um, essays that have signed up recently so anyways thank you mods thank you everybody and i will see you on sunday bye bye